Hello, and welcome to Crafty Hands Club Magazine Podcast. I'm your host, Carice Jefferson. This podcast is for crafters of all ages and walks of life who love connecting with other crafters, making crafts a lifestyle, or ready to turn their crafts into a profitable side business. Tune in weekly for honest conversations and interviews about industry news, trends, lifestyle, and business. Hey, craft cuties. Welcome to another episode of Crafty Hands Club Magazine Podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Facebook, the handle Crafty Hands Club Mag. Also, be sure to use hashtag CHC Podcast when sharing screenshots of today's episode. Hey, listeners, you're definitely in for a treat. Today's guest is nothing short of amazing. She is a lampwork glass artist from the Midwest area. She's known for making wearable glass art along with memorial pieces. Her style is simple yet vibrant. Her journey to becoming the artist she is today started just 15 years ago doing a bead making class at the annual Bead and Button Expo that's held in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Since then, she has participated in various shows across the United States. She has taught classes at the same expo where she got her start. Her designs have been featured in a number of books, international jewelry magazines, and embroidery kits. She's been the guest on national syndicated television shows, and she owned a glass studio where you can see her work in central Wisconsin. Today's guest is the lovely and talented Tammy Ray. Hi, Tammy. I'm so happy to have you. Well, hello. I'm very honored to be here. Thanks so much. And that was such a a wonderful introduction. Thank you. That makes me sound like, wow. (laughs) Thank you. You have done some incredible things. And, you know, when you look at 15 years, I'm like, wow, she started when? (laughs) You know, because with the volume of work that you have done in such a short period of time, usually people will expect, oh, she's been doing this 25 years, 30 years. You know what I mean? So to see that you've been, it's only been 15 years, that is really, really inspiring. It's like, makes me wonder, like, has she ever had a chance to rest? You know, <laughs> because that you've done so much, like to, to get on some of these projects is really cool. So Tammy, since you did so much in so little time, what were you like as a child? I started creating things. I always liked making things, just making things with my hands. And it started out like, I don't know how old you are, but I'm a grandma. And I, I had one of those little looms that had those long stretchy loops that you wove and made little potholders. And I would make those and try to sell them to my grandma. So I could go back to the little five and dime store to buy more little loops to make more little potholders. So I seem to have that gene of making something and then 
trying to figure out a way to market it so I could buy more supplies is kind of how it started (laughs) out. So I was raised by my grandparents. So from the age of five, and so we didn't have a television. And honestly, I think that that probably contributed to, I had more time to fill because I wasn't watching television. Not that there's anything wrong with that because I watch plenty of it now, but like at Christmas, I would always get some kind of a craft. I'd get a book and a craft. One of them was these, this big box of paper mache sheets. And I made these huge paper mache flowers. And this was like when I was like eight or nine. So it just, from way back, I would just do little, little crafty projects all the time. Oh, we have some things in, in common, Tammy. And it's just funny how you can connect with someone else and not even know it. When you were talking about a pie holder, I was about seven when I was in vacation Bible school and we had the plastic loom and we were going over and under <laughs> making yes. pie holders. And I remember yellow and white to this day. And my mother had it for a long time. She used it for many, many years. Those were fun. All that little stuff was fun. And and then vacation Bible school, of course, you always had the craft time with the popsicle sticks and the and the shellac that probably yes. needed more ventilation than what we had because we yeah, it probably wasn't healthy, but it I I thought it smelled kind of good. <laughs> That's terrible. But it was just the crafty time was always really fun. And I think it helps with social skills. I don't know what it did for you, but crafts definitely help with social skills. And it also gave a way to step away from outdoors. You know, you don't have to be outdoors all the time. You don't have to be hearing a lecture all the time. (laughs) So it was kind of like a good balance in between those activities at Vacation Bible School. Yeah, it was always fun to see what they had. And then years later, I would be the person as an adult who came up with the projects, you know, that the kids would do. And and even now in the shop that I have in central Wisconsin, I have kids come in for little birthday parties and little scouting groups come in. So that sort of carries over and it's just, it's just fun. It's fun interacting with children. Your experience with working with kids in the glass studio, how has that been? You know, I know you said that you've had a good time, a fun time, but I mean, in terms of, did you teach them fundamentals or did you just go over a project that was really, really simple? Because as a parent, you will be concerned about kids around glass. Well, let me explain a little bit better the kinds of classes that I do in my shop. I I teach one-on-one glass to adults and kind of do like a little interview with them first to find out what it is that they want to learn to make sure that I'm a good match for them. And because I, at this point, because of zoning issues and code, I'm just set up with my torch and one additional one. So I don't have a full-on glass hot shop set up. So when I talk about classes that I teach for kids and adults, they're jewelry making. And so when a group of kids comes in, like I had, there's some, a lot of summer camping programs up near where I live before COVID had this one camp bringing in groups of girls on Tuesday afternoons. It's called get off the Island day. Cause the camp is literally 
on an island in the middle of a chain of lakes up here. It's very cool. And so these gals came in and um, I have like a group of 20 gals and we would make bracelets or anklets. They could have the option. We'd learn how to measure and all that. And then the glass was brought in. I would do a glass blowing demo at the end of their of their class session. So they'd be with me for about an hour. I would explain what I did and how I did it. So as far as teaching children how to make glass, I don't know that because it's lamp work glass blowing. If I ever add glass fusing, because that's a bit different, you don't have your hands in, near, near the fire. It's more done with a kiln. I'll probably stick mostly to the jewelry making, simple beads and leather and metal with the exposure of glass by doing a demonstration. That makes sense. And speaking of glass fusing, I started reading on it last year. And before I found out that I was expecting, I was going to try a couple of projects with a microwave kiln. And of course, when I found out that I was carrying a baby, I did not do that, but that's on my list right. to do now that my son is almost four months old. The fusing is interesting. It's a lot of beautiful work that's done with glass fusing. And it's pretty easy once you get the mechanics down. It is. It's a very user-friendly. I don't specialize in it at all. There's a a lady in a neighboring town here that you can go and take fusing classes and, and stained glass classes. And what's interesting about glass is that I think if until you get really familiar with all the different things, you're like, oh yeah, that's made out of glass, but there's so many different techniques that, you know, I I went through many years. I had so many things in my basement of my house because I did a little of this and I did a little of that. I painted, I, you know, all of these different things. And then when I took that glass class at the bead and button convention, I narrowed everything down. And that might be part of the answer as to why. I've moved along fairly rapidly in 15 years. I narrowed my focus because I found something that really, really grabbed me. I always love to create all kinds of different things. But boy, once I started melting glass and then making things, because I'd been making jewelry for a good decade before I made my first bead, then started incorporating the glass pieces that I made into my jewelry and then started selling glass to other artists who make jewelry and it kind of went from there. I became very focused and I, I just, I sold everything or gave everything away other than just this. And I also got to a point in my life, I was an empty nester. This was sort of my second career, if you will. It just happened that I, it turned a hobby that turned into a business. I didn't have a grand plan, but I did have a, a sense of, I need to make this work because I need to figure out a way to make an income from what I can do, or I was going to have to go back and rely on that first career, which was teaching music, which was fine, but I didn't want to go back to that. So it's like the, the push of not wanting to go back to do something I'd done before and to push this thing that I knew how to do and turn it into something that could give me enough income to make a living was sort of the momentum that was pushing the, the train. You really took focus to a whole new level. It was pretty hardcore, which is something that a lot of crafters do not do. As you stated, 
you were dibbling and dabbling in some of everything. That's pretty much a lot of crafters, right? You yeah. know, let's try this. Let me try that. They see someone on Pinterest, see something in the craft group. And the way that you narrow your focus, that's something to think about because when you do narrow your focus, you are able to tend to that one segmentation and you're able to expand on that segmentation without being distracted or without being all over the place. And you explained it perfectly where you were able to go ahead and do collaborations and be in books and television now you have the experience in the glass arena (laughs) and you do beautiful work tammy is there um because there are different types of glasses that are out here and it's, it's interesting because different glasses produces different color combinations or different swirls or designs. Is there a certain type of glass that you like to work with or are you just give me the glass and I'll work my magic? The reason I took that first glass bead making class is that there was a type of bead that I was seeing at the time selling on eBay and it was a newer, at the time it was a newer kind of glass and it's called borosilicate. It's Pyrex. It's like your corning bakeware. The glass was originally made for laboratory use because it melts at a very high temperature, which makes the finished product less shocky. If you think about glass being used in a lab, it'd be your beakers, your um, test tubes, and Mm -hmm. you pour boiling hot water into an ice cold glass container and, and it won't break. And they needed that kind of durability in the lab. And so it was, the glass itself was created, I think back in the twenties and thirties. And it was in, I think as late as the seventies that people started adding metals mostly into the glass to create these colors. I don't know, what was it around the nineties, early two thousands that it became pretty widespread that you could buy borosilicate glass in colored rod form to be used to make sculptures and jewelry and beads. And so those beads I had seen, I loved them so much. And so the teacher um, was Doug Remschneider from Indiana, and he's not teaching glass anymore. The last I heard he was, he was a beekeeper. So we all have our different careers in life. It's like, Oh, wow. That's a different. I know. I know. (laughs) And he was just a super talented guy. And I just, it was just totally a God thing that I ended up taking a class with this guy who was really like a master for color in boro glass. Boro is like B-O-R-O is like the short, what we use for borosilicate. So anyway, I loved the results of boro glass. And so that's where I got my start. Most people start on Moretti or Murano Italian glass, and then they over time moved to boro that I did kind of the reverse. And I've done a little bit, my glass is called hard glass. Italian glass is called soft glass, Mm -hmm. all the same hardness when it's in its cool form, but it's the melting temperature that determines soft or hard. The Italian glass melts at a lower melting point and mine's higher. Most artists do both. And I don't, I, I work in Boro. The only other glass I use is uh, recycled bottles. And that's sort of a in-between 
the workability sort of in between the soft glass and the boro. It's sort of a halfway as far as the melting point. So you have to be very organized and work very clean and clean up after yourself really meticulously. Because if you were to have a rod of boro and then you'd grab a rod of Moretti, which is Italian glass, and you'd mix them in a piece, that piece would break. There's something called COE in glass and in glass fusing. If people are familiar with that, there's the COE. You can't take a, a 104 and I think a 96 and mix them because that piece might not break immediately or it could break immediately, but eventually it'll just sit on a shelf somewhere and that beautiful thing will suddenly be in four pieces. So you can't mix them. And I know myself well enough that if I worked in several different kinds of glass, I would, they all look the same. You know, there's mm -hmm. all, so I know I'd get them mixed up. I'd make pieces that weren't durable. So I don't do any Italian glass at all. It's Pyrex, borosilicate, and then also just wine and booze bottles that I get from my local restaurants and bars that make some really cool upcycled pieces. So that's, those are the two kinds of glass that I use. That's a good way to set yourself apart. And as I was listening to you, you are definitely telling the truth about glass because it looks alike. <laughs> and you definitely did the reverse because most people do start off with the Italian glass first. And working with Kunes are so much fun. I got into Kunes a couple years ago because part of metalsmith is enameling. Yes. And to enamel, you have to put it in the kiln. So, and I had always wanted to work with a kiln because I had wanted to learn ceramic bead, but a kiln for that is at a very higher firing pressure than it is for enamel. And that's something too, for someone who wants to get into glass, basically focus on one type at a time. <laughs> So you don't get confused as you are going into the process, because if you mix glasses, they will shatter sooner or later. So that, that was good advice for someone who's interested in doing glass art or who just got started and they see all of these different types of glass that are out there. Aside from that, Tammy, what other advice would you have for those who would like to make glass beads or just wearable art or pieces around the house for home decor? What advice do you have? Well, as far as the kind of glass that I do, primarily the lampwork glass or glass blowing, and lampwork is a term that comes from the ancient method of making, of glass making, and you can Google that, what does lamp working mean? Because I'll say I do lamp working. They, oh, you make lamps? And I get that question all the time. And it's like, no, no. And then I try to explain, but you know, you can Google lamp working and it'll explain the ancient technique and why it was originally called that. Their little torch was called a lamp. It's kind of right. <laughs> yeah. So it, it's kind of a long explanation. But if somebody wanted to get into making glass, because it's a, you know, it's not a, a hobby or a profession for the faint of heart. You need to be very respectful. It's kind of like learning how to drive a car, I think, that mm -hmm. it's dangerous if you know what you're doing. But if you get 
careless. If you drink, like if you're driving and you drink, or if you're drinking and you make glass, not a good combination. So, you know, we don't have glass parties here where you have the wine, like the painting classes. We don't do that. And so taking a class from somebody that you can get some good reviews for, because there's, there's still some hot shops around. You might have to drive a little way, but take like a beginner glass class, either in bead making or pendant making. And it can be soft glass, borrow glass. If you have a, a leaning toward the style of finished product, one or the other, you'd maybe want to pay attention to that. But there's some great teachers out there that have big setups where they can teach like eight to 10 students at a time. Taking a couple classes, because I, I took that one class at Bead and Button. At the time, you could go home from the convention, you could buy up the used torches and the used kilns at a deal because they used them in the classes. I went home from that convention. I mean, in two days time, I was totally hooked, went home with a kiln and a torch and set up on, because you need good ventilation. There's all kinds of safety issues that we don't have time to go into today, but they're super important as far as lung protection and ventilation and eye protection, special glasses. You want to make sure all of those bases are covered and a good quality teacher will go over that in a beginner class and make sure that you're on the road to success and safety. I worked outside on my front porch well into a Wisconsin late fall because I didn't have a ventilation set up inside and I had a fan behind me, just like froze myself, just determined. And I made the ugliest beads you've ever seen because it just takes a lot of time. So take a class and then you just PPP, practice, practice, practice. And I, the students that I have, I tell them your thousandth bead will be round. Otherwise they're organic. You know, it's like, it's just a matter of doing it and doing it again and doing it again. And then it just starts to click. So take a class, get a setup, hook up with someone who can help you get the right equipment. And if anybody wants to write to me, I'm happy to, you know, to kind of lead them in a direction of a good supply house that can, can get them set up properly with good equipment. Cause there's a lot of, you know, just like with anything else, there's a lot of availability of items out there that maybe aren't the best. And even if it's just going to be a hobby, and if it's going to be a hobby, just to warn you, it's one of your more expensive hobbies, but there's still a lot of people out there where they make glass and it's just a hobby. And, you know, it's not as expensive a hobby as collecting horses. So, you know, it's all, it's all <laughs> relative. I, I think that would be a good way to get started. And people, you know, you're welcome to contact me. I think my email will be on here somewhere and you can ask me questions. I did want to talk about the kiln because we, we had talked about fusing and and enameling in kilns. The only thing I use my kiln for is the piece is 100% made in the flame. It's all free form with heat and gravity. And it goes in my kiln to do what's called annealing. And annealing is a real simplified explanation is just to make sure the glass is sturdy and solid and all one temperature. And it's held for a little while at a temperature and then slowly drops. And it makes it very, very sturdy. Whereas when you first finish a piece, it's in a fragile state because it's all different temperatures. And so I use my kiln to do what's called annealing. That's pretty awesome. Annealing and metalsmith is very, just think about forgiveness. You can do any and everything to the metal. And yep. when you put the metal in for annealing, it removes everything and you can work on the metal again. Well, you know, what's interesting is the big steel 
girders and supporters that are on bridges that we drive on every day, that metal is annealed for hardness. So all of these different products, there's different annealing temperatures to make it soft and malleable or to make it hard and brittle or to make it hard and sturdy. And there's a certain temperature and length of time that's assigned to all these different types of materials, be it a different kind of glass, different kinds of metals. So you're right with metal smithing, the annealing process is there too. And I'm so glad that you touched on the expense because that was a question I was going to ask. Someone looks on YouTube and they see glass art and they like it and they say, oh, okay, I want to get into this. I want to try this. And then the next question is, what type of setup do I need at home? How much is it going to cost me on the average? I know there's a process to ensure the safety. And as you get more and more into it, you're going to buy more. But from a starting standpoint, what are some basics that a beginner would need? Depending on the type of glass, and one of the major reasons that a lot of people start on Italian glass is that you can work on a torch called map gas. It's a canister that you can buy at your local hardware and you get a torch top that screws on there. Map gas is something that people use in metal smithing too. Some people look at it's a little bit dirtier. I guess I probably won't go too much further into that because I don't know too much about it. I have never used it, but it's very attainable and it's inexpensive. And so That kind of torch setup, though, would never melt boro because of that higher melting point. With borosilicate glass, you need a more expensive torch and a dual fuel, meaning two different kinds of fuels. One of them's oxygen and one of them's propane. And you combine those two. Soft glass can be done in a torch and it'd be mostly small beads and small pendants on a a map gas setup. But um, if you Google map gas and glass making, you'll find a lot of information there. So those two differences, or the differences just in that torch, is a huge cost difference. So you're going to need your torch, and it will depend on what kind of glass you've chosen to launch into. You will need a kiln. You can get some small kilns that will anneal glass, but you're, you're going to need that or your, or your beads will break. Borosilicate glass can lay out and not be annealed. In fact, I understand some people don't anneal. But soft glass, you have to anneal like pretty quickly. You can't even let it sit out in the air temperature. The bead will crack into a couple pieces off your mandrel. And the mandrel is the little rod that goes to the bead that you cover with what's called bead release. And that lets you do what that says, bead release. You twist the bead after it's baked in the kiln, and it'll allow you to release it from that metal rod. Otherwise, it'll always be on the metal because you can't get it off. Backing up, you need a torch, you need a kiln. People kind of think, oh, I can just do those two things, but you have to have protection for your eyes and there's special glasses. My glasses were on about $300. I need like bifocal kind of stuff. And I have these little stickies that help me give the magnification. It's like a cling on your window and they can stick inside my expensive glasses. So when my eyes decide to change, I just peel it out and replace it with a higher magnification. So that helps save money there. But then your ventilation. It's not safe to just work in a room with a fan in the window. You only get two eyes, so you want eye protection. You only get two lungs. This kind of stuff literally can kill you if you don't protect yourself from fumes that are coming off that torch and from the harsh light that's coming off the fire 
on your eyes. You can go blind and it can, it can very much damage your lungs. So not to be overly dramatic, it's just something that I'm, I'm kind of neurotic about the safety of this, that you need to get your start properly so that you have the right equipment. One other thing to think about is if you're going to set up a torch set up in your home, check with your insurance company. Mm-hmm. Um, some insurance companies don't look fondly on an open flame and it's just a small bench torch. I had mine in my home studio and it was in my home and it was fine, but some insurance companies, you'd need to have one of those cute little outbuildings that isn't attached to your house. And, and so that's something to think about too. Those are all things. And of course, if you have to build a little outbuilding that you know adds to your cost. If you're lucky enough to live in a city that's large enough to have a good studio, sometimes they'll rent time and you can go in and, and rent bench time like by the hour and go in and make glass. Those are a little hard to find. It just depends on what part of the country you live in. You dropped a lot of gems. You most definitely did that. And safety is important to anyone that's interested in doing glass art. Yes, please check with your insurance and make sure that you're in compliance because you don't want to have the stuff at your home and let's say worst case scenario, something happens and then the insurance company just doesn't come through. So make sure that you're in compliance and really understand exactly what the insurance will cover in that case, in the case of something happens. Right. And I know a lot of insurance companies are not fans of that because that is considered as a high risk. Got to check with them and then check with your fire marshal. Don't be afraid of them because they really mm-hmm. aren't there to bust you. You know, it's not like the, you know, somebody's got a big stick. They're they're going to they want to help you be safe. And so, you know, they'll help you with um, fire extinguishers, distances from walls. That's just wise. Rather than trying to feel like you're sneaking around, just be open and up front. Because my shop downtown, I have the shop that's in downtown Wapaka and it's, um, you know, all the buildings connect. It's a main street. And I have the one torch set up there and fire marshal comes in, code guy. Everybody's happy with how we've set it up and it's all good. Just as a side note, it, and this is a long story, another podcast, but we have <laughs> recently purchased an 1888 Catholic church about 12 minutes from the original shop. And I'm setting up in there now. So I have so much more space for classes and teaching. What's interesting about out here is that nobody really cares what I do other than my insurance company, of course, but it's kind of cool because I've, you know, I'm sitting here talking to you and I'm looking at these amazing stained glass windows that are from 1888. So anyway, that's just sort of a side thing, but do be aware of the safety and, and check with the authorities to make sure you're doing everything appropriately. And congratulations on the expansion. Thank you. That's real cool. Glass art has been around for a long time. And when you do something for a long time, one of the challenges is to stay motivated or look for ways to make it exciting. How do you continue to be innovative or come up with new techniques? Where do you get your inspiration from? Or what's your process in terms of that? My approach with a lot of my glassmaking is 
kind of in reverse of a lot, a lot of glassmakers because I started out as a jewelry designer. I made and designed jewelry for about 15 years before I started making glass. And when I started making glass, I wanted to make specific glass beads to be used in specific jewelry designs. So a lot of times when I'm making glass, I have the piece of jewelry in mind that that's going to go into as a finished piece. Whereas the vast majority of glass artists, they're making beads and pendants and, and different things, but it's, it's up to you to decide how you want to put that in a piece of jewelry. And my brain is sort of thinking the jewelry first, and then what kind of glass do I want to go into that? And so one of the, the things that, do, that really does keep it fresh is that I'm always thinking of new ways to wear it. Like what's a different way? Because I, I have a lot of really lovely customers that honestly, unless I make something new, there's nothing for them to buy because they buy, when I make a new kind of bracelet, they buy that one, if I, you know, so I'm trying to stay ahead of, of some of these people who have been my lifeline, especially this last year. So I'm grateful to them. So that's one of the things I'm very inspired by nature. And then the colors that my glass can make by layering like opaque colors with transparency and different layers of transparency and glittery colors over the top. There's chemical scientific reaction between the different colors when you layer them that can be very unexpected. That when you try something new, like one of the, the really inspirational things too is a customer, this customer at Christmas time, he wanted, he's Danish and he wanted something done with mistletoe. And I'm like, okay, well, I've never done this before. So I looked up pictures of mistletoe and I'm trying to make glass that look like it. And so custom requests are very inspiring. And then the other thing is there is an endless, literally endless amount of things that I can make with the kind of glass that I use. And everyone struggled this last year when we were all shut down with COVID, we were stuck in our homes. Thankfully, I was able to get back and forth to my studio and we were shut down, of course, because we were a retail store. For the first little while, I was like a lot of people kind of fell into a bit of a depression. Like I have this time on my hands, I should be productive, but I'm kind of immobilized by fear of everything that was going on. And finally, one day I, I literally like looked at myself and said, you got to stop this. And I started working on things that I didn't know how to do. Blowing hollow work and hollow ornaments was something that I had never done well. And so I spent two months just doing that. I didn't do anything else. I just worked on that. And um, by Christmas time, I had ornaments that were nice enough. I mean, there's always room for improvement, but I was able to sell them. And so that motivation was try to try to help my mental health. And so we're back to what you mentioned at the beginning of why we even do any of this crafting. And so much of it is just something that just help us mentally emotionally, it's a, it's a safe haven and a harbor that is just really important whether, and, and that's one thing too, now that it's a business for me, I have to step back a little and sometimes just do a piece just for the fun of it. That has nothing to do with how expensive will it be when it's done. I just make it. And just because it's part of the therapy. That can be a challenge as a business owner, because you do so much in terms of the product line and you test and you answer customers' demands, which are ongoing. And, you know, you just do so much around the business to where if you're not careful, you can neglect your own personal project 
in the process. So I'm glad that you touched on that, that you were able to step away and say, okay, let me just work on a personal project for a month or two. Then I can return back to the products that I do on the business end of things. Tammy, just two more questions that I have for you. The first question is, where can people find you online? Online, my website is TammyRay.com and it's T-A-M-M-Y-R-A-E.com. From that website, and then just to give you a little heads up, in addition to moving, I'm also totally revamping the website. And so be patient for the next week or so. There's some things that are working a little bit clumsily at the moment, but within about a week or two, the new website will be all set up and it'll have links to my regular glass. It'll have links to other pretty things that I buy to go in my shops that kind of enhance my glass. I think they go well with it. And then there'll also be links in there on the website now, but there's also links to the memorial work that I do. I do cremation infused glass for people and for pets. And that's a very meaningful kind of work that I do. And if anybody has any questions about that, you can check it out on the website or feel free to call me. A lot of those kinds of projects involve several phone calls because it's, it's sensitive work and important work. So, so that's how you can find me. Great. And the, the cremation work is, is big business. I've seen artists that does it with resin. And they, they take the remains and they make it into different art pieces. And before I reached out to you, I had looked on the website and I said, oh, she does glass fusion with cremation remains. And I found that very interesting. So that was going to be a question uh, on that. And I'm pretty sure that it would take multiple conversations because it's a sensitive subject you know this is dealing with someone's memory that they want to turn into a positive the other question that i have for you with glass beads some glass beads it can take 30 minutes for just one bead (laughs) and a lot of people are not aware of that but it's a process you don't just make a glass bead on average, what's the typical time time length that it will take to make a string of beads? And glass beads on the string are different from other types of beads on the string. You're not going to see 30 and 40 glass beads on the string. And if you do, it's going to be real expensive. Right. So what's the average time that it takes to make a strand of beads and what's like the average number of beads on a strand? Well, here's the, the funny answer that glass artists get this question frequently. How long did it take you to make that bead? And you say 15 minutes plus 15 years. Okay. Mm-hmm. So it's the amount of time that you've sat at your bench and learned how to make these. So that's kind of the funny snarky answer, I guess. My beads will take anywhere from, I would say, because you you have the actual making of the bead and then you, afterward you have the cleaning of the bead because you've got to get that bead release out from the inside of the hole. 
And so if you include that in there, I would say most of my beads at minimum take 10 minutes. And so if you figure that out, how many beads I can make in an hour, I don't sell many strands of beads. I sell quite a few pairs and I'm often proud of myself if I get a pair. If there's two beads that are similar in color and size, I quick grab them and fasten them together because they'd make perfect earrings. If people do a custom request for a pair, a bead pair, I often have to make five or six beads to come up with a pair because the more you do it, the better you get at it. But I still end up with extras. And that's always fine too, because then you have coordinating beads. So it's like a family. And Pyrex borosilicate beads are most of the time significantly more expensive than Italian glass beads. It's like for simple beads, simply because of the the glass is more expensive for the most part, and the whole torch setup is more expensive as well. So that hopefully will explain a little in the pricing of it. But some of my more intricate beads, you're right, as much as a half an hour. And some of my like bigger pieces that aren't beads, like paperweights or intricate marbles, which I really enjoy making, those can take two hours because the actual marble might take an hour to make, but you have about an hour of prep work with preparing rods that you're going to use in that piece. So it could be a couple hours. And some of my marbles run $100 to $200. And interesting that they're expensive. If I post them online, they sell right away. So there aren't usually many marbles posted. There's people that collect things. And so Mm -hmm. you can put it up there and, and it's sold. That's good. Well, and then back to the whole pricing. If you do sell your work, think really hard about are you underpricing yourself? Because yes. everybody does. Everybody mm-hmm. starts out. They're just, they want to sell this pretty thing for just enough so they can buy more supplies to make another pretty thing. You know, you've put your own time in it. And usually your time is more valuable than the products you put in. So time and materials multiply it a couple times to get to your retail price. Because one yes. of these days, somebody's going to approach you at a show and say, would you wholesale? And if you can't knock half of that off there, you can't afford to wholesale it. Something to think about. Yeah, definitely know your numbers. That's something that I tell people all the time because I have an accounting background and I've been in the space for 20 years. That's one of the things I always tell crafters is really know your numbers, make sure they work for you. And Yes, you're in business to sell, but you definitely are in business to make a profit or else you won't be in business long. So that was great business advice. And, you know, pricing is not just covering the the cost of materials. You do have to factor in your time and what overhead that you might have and monthly expenses you need to cover. You have to take all of that into consideration and then set different price levels because when you wholesale, you're selling it at a lower price than you typically would at retail. So you definitely need to price accordingly. And and the worst thing you want is to be taken advantage of because so many handmade artists have been taken advantage of. And that's a whole podcast in itself. And you you know, you really have to know your numbers and know your value that you're bringing to your customers. And not everybody's your customer. And the sooner you you know that, the better off you will be in business. And 
going into business is different from a hobby. If you are in business, you need to treat it as a business, bottom line. I would love to have you later on for a part two where we just talk the business side of things. And it's just funny how the conversation is ending on a business tone. I would love to have you on later on down the line, you know, depending on availability. It was such an honor to have you on today's podcast. It was great talking to you. I'm most definitely going to make a trip up to central Wisconsin so that I can do a one-on-one class class with you. That is definitely on my list for this year. And I will be reaching out to you. And for those who are listening, I hope that you have gotten a wealth of information. She's dropped a lot of gems. Her website information is going to be listed in the description of this episode. So make sure to visit her website. And thank you all for listening. Hope you all enjoyed the podcast and tune in next week. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much.